So we've been working our way through the wonderful book of Ephesians. And today we find ourselves in the second prayer that Paul is going to offer on behalf of the Ephesian church. So the first time he prays, he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be opened, that they might know God more fully, a prayer for supernatural knowledge. And then he's going to go on to preach and teach about the mystery of the Gentiles and the Jews coming together in this new creation, this new family. And having done that, he's going to offer a second prayer. But this time he's going to pray that they would experience the fullness of God himself. The first prayer is a prayer for knowledge. The second prayer is one for an experience of the fullness of all that God has to offer. As I was thinking about that movement, it reminded me of those times in life where we think we know how to do something, and then we experience it. Perhaps all of us, or at least most of us here, can relate to that moment we learn to ride a bicycle. Because there is that idea of how you ride a bicycle. And then there is the moment at which you actually begin to develop that balance. Now, I was overall a fairly athletic kid. I, you know, was on the top tier of getting picked for kickball. But when it came to learning to ride a bicycle, I was on the very far, far, far end of the bell curve. In fact, it was so late that my parents were worried that I would be missing out on so many of life's wonderful experiences and the freedom that came back in the day when you could just hop on your bike and go anywhere you wanted to in the city of Aurora. So they came up with a wonderful plan. They were going to bribe me to help me learn how to ride a bike. And they offered quite a bribe. Back in the day, there was this incredible paradise called Toys R Us. And you could go to Toys R Us and you could get anything. And there was one thing that every kid in my age group at Freeman Elementary School wanted. Voltron. The original Voltron. Back in the day, not a remake, but the most amazing thing, you could take these robot lions or these 30 vehicles and combine them to create a robot. It was the most amazing thing. So I was fully motivated. And my brother, who was 12 years older than I, knew how much I wanted to get this. And I think he wanted me to get it a little bit too, because it was that cool. And he offered me the secret knowledge to riding a bicycle. And I was all ears because I wanted to be able to get Voltron. And so he offered me the secret to riding my bicycle around the block. Are you ready? Make sure you go downhill. That's a really, really good and helpful thing. However, well, I did not know how to ride a bike. I did know that trying to pedal a bike uphill would not be a good idea. So then he offered to teach me, and he took me over to the parking lot at Freeman Elementary School, and this was his methodology that finally resulted in me learning to ride a bicycle. Being 12 years older than me, he did not allow me to leave, or he would beat me up until I learned to ride a bike. And lo and behold, 
the motivation of Voltron fell in comparison to the motivation of not getting stomped by my 12-year-old brother. Not saying that as an elevation or a parenting tactic that the Bible would endorse. Just a story. But that recognition as I was terrified of my brother, the moment came after having fallen repeatedly and tears with scraped body parts getting back up again because the beating I was afraid of would be worse. So you keep trying and then the moment comes where knowledge becomes experience, where you catch the pedal and all of a sudden it continues on. That that is what Paul is longing for in this prayer for us. That what we're going to see today is this is a prayer for fullness. That we would pray for one another. That we would pray for the church local and the church universal. That there is nothing greater than that we would experience the fullness of God because it changes everything. So we're going to break down this passage this morning. And the first thing we're going to hear is this. We are to pray boldly, to pray boldly for fullness because of what God has already done, what he has already done. And so we're going to start with verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. That's one of those clues that has us look back. It's like a therefore. Anytime you see it, you look back. And as we looked at last week, Paul starts in Ephesians 3.1 with those same words, for this reason, linking back to everything he's revealed in chapter 2, this incredible truth of the Jews and the Gentiles bringing brought together those far off, those who were by nature objects of wrath, have been merged together in Christ to create this new humanity. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was literally in prison because he put into practice the message of Jesus. He actually believed God had created this new community for not only Jews, but for Gentiles. And because of that, he finds himself in prison. And here's one of the most amazing things about the Bible. Anybody else ever get distracted when they pray? Never happens to anybody else, right? You don't have to start thinking about random things. Paul gets distracted, right? He goes on a 12-verse tangent because he got distracted. Now, in fairness, he's getting distracted with much holier things than I usually get distracted. He got distracted by the mystery of the gospel, right? And so in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in verse 13, he comes back to and he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He goes on this tangent that we looked at last week. I don't want you to lose heart. And then he begins to pray. And what's so profound is he knows that just hearing the words even hearing the divine words of God revealed in Scripture is not enough. It must be brought to life by the power of the Spirit. So he's going to pray for them that they would receive it. And so he says, I bow my knees. And again, one of those expressions we move so quickly by because that's language we sing. It's language we use. But the Jewish posture of prayer, even today, if you go to the Western Wall, is to stand. 
and to lift your hands to heaven. Only in extreme circumstances of dire, deep emotional distress do we see people in the Old Testament bowing in prayer. And so, Paul, we recognize this means an awful lot to him. He has changed the posture of his heart. He says, I bow before whom? Before the Father, from whom every family and on heaven and on earth is named. And again, we give people names. We wear name tags. Why? So we can differentiate who we are. But names in the Bible carry a whole lot more meaning. They represent the essential and true character of who you are. So who is it that we truly are who have trusted in Christ? We are the ones who have been named by our Father in heaven. The most essential and the most true thing about us is what? That we have been adopted, as Ephesians 1 says, as sons and daughters of the Most High. Because God has already done that, I'm going to pray to him for every family. Everyone who claims the name of Jesus has been united in him. And it's so easy looking back for us to say we see the grand plan of the gospel throughout scripture. That God scatters the people upon the earth for building a tower up to heaven in the story of Babel. And then we read God starts again with one man named Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him that one day through his offspring, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And now Paul says we now live in profound truth in light of that incredible truth. He says, looking back, I can now pray all the more with boldness. Don't we see that again and again in the Psalms and the Scriptures? That moment where the psalmist will look back and call the people to remember. How is it that we can pray boldly for fullness? We do it because of everything God has already done. If we were to have and take the time, we would recognize what? How many of us have prayed and say, I have seen God answer in something that I could describe as nothing less than miraculous. I have seen God deliver people from cancer who were condemned and everybody else said they were going to die and they didn't. And they're still alive and they're still praying Jesus. And the only explanation is that God did what only God can do. May it fuel our hearts for boldness before him when we look back at everything we have witnessed God doing. And that is exactly what he says. I have already seen God create a new community of Jew and Gentile in light of everything for this reason because I've already witnessed so much. I am going to pray boldly and I want you to pray boldly as well. Why? Because you have already witnessed everything that God has done. And how much more so we, even than Paul, living on the other side of the scriptures, living on the other side of almost 2,000 years of church history, of seeing the gospel advance almost to the ends of the earth. And yet, so often our prayers are puny and weak. Why? Because we fail to pray in boldness because we forget. Our memories are so short term. It is so easy for us to miss. 
and to fail. And we think about the Ephesian church. How is the church in Ephesus started? In grand wonder. The people brought together all of their magic scrolls and tossed them into a big giant burning party. There was a riot in Ephesus because the idol trade got turned upside down. The entire economy went into shock because people stopped buying idols because so much Christian influence had happened. Paul says, you've seen it. You have seen God move. So pray boldly in light of what he has already done. And then as we come to verses 16 to 19, we're going to see what Paul's going to actually pray for. And he's going to pray for three things. And they build upon one another. So there are three things, but they're really a staircase. He's going to say, I want you to pray for strength. And I want you to pray for comprehension. And then when you have these, ultimately, you're going to get fullness, being filled with all the fullness of God. So we're going to break that down and take strength first, verses 16 and 17. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith according to his riches. And we recognize what? God is very rich. God's wealth is innumerable, right? You could come to me and say, Matt, I've been praying for a million dollars. And you could give me a really great explanation of why God wants me to give you a million dollars. It's not going to happen. It doesn't matter. Why? Because I don't have it. I cannot give you what I do not have. But God's wealth is beyond measure. But not only is God's wealth immeasurable, so is his generosity. Because it doesn't say he gave from his wealth. The story used to be told about J.D. Rockefeller and how he waited for the news cameras and the people to show up and then he would begin to hand out dimes to kids and the kids would just go on these giant candy spending sprees because with a dime you could go into Toys R Us of the day and age and buy anything you wanted. It seemed like a small fortune, but this was J.D. Rockefeller. He gave from his wealth a dime, even countless dimes with nothing. But if he had given according to his wealth, he could have given each one of those kids a $1,000 bill. Then we're talking from a completely different expenditure. But what does God give? Not from his wealth, but according to his innumerable riches. That is what we benefit from. Is it any wonder that he says, if we're going to receive the innumerable riches of God, what must we have? We must be strengthened with power. And again, notice it's passive. It's not something I do. It's not I go to the gym so I can increase my muscles so that I can carry more of the wealth of God. No, it's something that he must do to me. And here's the other wonderful thing. There's many words in Greek that Paul will use all over the place for strength. He chooses a word here that's only used three other times in the New Testament. And they all refer to the growth of Jesus. This is the strength of Jesus who grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. He chooses a powerful word to describe something that we could not hope to attain on our own. And to drive that home, he says what? It happens through his spirit. 
right? Through his spirit. When we look at the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit come rushing upon people, right? It's how Gideon was able to defeat an army hundreds of times his size. One of my favorite stories is the short one in the book of Judges. Guy who doesn't get enough press, Shamgar, (laughs) strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I'm like, this is the Halloween costume we need to go viral next year. Like, you know, like that would be, um, but like, there's no way, I don't care how much Kung Fu you know and you didn't know in the ancient world, the book of Judges, right? Like, this is only a work of God. And we see clearly in the Old Testament, the Spirit coming in power. And then we come to the New Testament and at Pentecost and the prophecies of Joel being fulfilled and the Spirit coming upon all of God's people in power. And they work incredible acts of might. Through his Spirit comes power. But here's the profound, amazing truth that Paul prays for. Not that you would work signs and miracles and wonders. Not that those things aren't amazing and don't bring glory to God. But where does he pray that that fullness of power, according to the measurable riches of God, would be at work? In your inner being. That that, of all the things he could pray for, is what he chooses to pray. And to recognize we live in a culture, what, obsessed with the external. Right? That's how half of our economy is based, is upon the external. But he says, no, I pray for the internal. We find him talking in this language in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Right? We recognize there are those moments in life where you keep getting stronger and then you kind of hit this point. Some of you aren't there yet. But then it's kind of always looking back and it's always like, Man, I'm still directing camp. I'm, you know, going to be pushing 50 in a couple of years here. You know what? Like, it takes a little bit more out of me after a week at camp than it did 15 years ago, right? Because the outer man is wasting away. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. This is how Paul can utter the incredible boasts he does. Other people boast about what they're doing and what does Paul boast in 2 Corinthians? I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. He's going to boast about his persecutions. Even though my outer man is probably gnarled and hobbling around, my inner man, because of the faith and the power of the Spirit, has grown in innumerable ways. This is how Paul can say, I have crucified. I have been crucified, but now Christ lives in me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is someone whose inner man has been strengthened in profound ways. And then as we come to the end of verse 17, he gives us another picture of what that looks like. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Another way of picturing the Spirit strengthening the inner man as we see the Trinity involved throughout this entire prayer. And that word for dwell is an amazing one. It doesn't mean to set up a tent. It doesn't mean a temporary resident. This is where you make your home. That the goal is what? That Christ would make his home in us. That he would feel comfortable inside of us. And for Christ to feel comfortable, that means our righteousness and our sanctification must be ever increasing as he makes himself at 
home, in our lives, in our hearts, being parallel to in your inner being. And all this comes through faith. And we recognize on the one hand, this seems like a strange request, doesn't it? Because these are Christians. This is the church he's talking to. And yet, as we go throughout Ephesians, Paul will hold this tension that, yes, you have the Spirit. Yes, Christ is already dwelling in your hearts, but you need more of it. When we get to Ephesians 5, pray that you would, what, be filled with the Spirit. Literally, pray that you would be continually being filled, filled more and more, continually present with the Spirit. Like, there's not even a good way to say it in English because it's so much a piling on of continuous present participle. There's no good way to describe it, right? It's because it's something that there should be more and more of. As full as you think you are, guess what? God's bigger, right? Every time you get full, oh, there's more. It's a wonderful and blessed thing. And so this first request, pray that we would be strengthened in our inner being. That to remind ourselves what we as individuals, what we as the church need is not more power defined by the world. It's not a political revolution. What he says and what he prays for is that we would be transformed in the inner being, that we would be strengthened. And just to help give us an idea of that, I don't know how you choose gift bags. If you were to ask my wife, well, there's probably that part of, you know, like, I found a gift bag up here, and so it was like, okay, this will work. Imagine that this is the most beautiful gift bag adorned and with sequins and glitter and all, you know, like it's, it's one of those like gift bags that costs as much as your gift, right? So imagine that, not just the gift bag that was from the dollar store or wherever it is. I usually buy my gift bags, right? But so often, what are we so concerned about? If we look at a gift bag, if we picture this as us, we're wrapped up in how it looks. But imagine that we needed a gift bag that could hold the innumerable measure of the fullness of God. Well, I thought about bringing a stack of bricks up here and dropping them into this gift bag one at a time, right? Well, this gift bag, what? If it is not strengthened, if it is not reinforced in ways that it is not expected to be, what's going to happen? The handles are going to rip out. Then I could grab it like this, but you could keep dropping bricks on, but I better back up my toes, right? Because eventually it's going to burst. And the recognition is that if we do not pray for strength, we will be like this gift bag. We will only be able to hold so much of the fullness of God. And there is more of him to be had. The goal is that we would be bursting at the seams with his fullness. And if that's to happen, the only way it can happen is if he strengthens us. If our inner man, if the inner part of us is being renewed day by day, more and more into the image of God. Christ. And so the first thing he prays for is that we would pray desperately for fullness. Why? Because God alone is the one who can give strength. Then the next prayer as we move into verses 17 to 19 is for comprehension. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. And he begins with being rooted and grounded. And I love here, he uses two different images. One from nature, right? A tree, if it is rooted, right? Those roots go out 
deep and wide and powerful. And even after you cut the tree down, the roots are still there. The picture is that we would be so rooted, we would be solid in love. And then he draws an image from the architectural world, right? A foundation. If you do not have a strong foundation, if you are not founded in love, you cannot be built up in love. That these are essential as he continues to pray. And then he chooses another word. We would need to be strengthened to comprehend, right? Usually we don't think about needing to be strong in order to understand something, do we? But again, he's going to say that this is basically, I want you to know what is incomprehensible. Well, then we're probably going to need a little bit of strength, right? And I love the way that Paul does this. Before he uses a word that's only used four times in the New Testament, this time he chooses a word for strength. This is the only place. He wants you to recognize that this is a type of strength that is completely different from any other understanding of strength that you understand. Why? Because you need it to comprehend. Literally, it means to grasp something, right? So I have a yippy dog. And so there are those moments when my yippy dog gets let outside without his collar on, right? And I have to go get him. And what do I do? I have to seize him by the back of the collar, right? Or by the back of the neck, like a mom pup, right? He's like, stop, barking, right? You have to grab them, right? You have to seize them. And this is such a powerful word, to talk about comprehension, it's used in Acts 10, verse 34. And before I read that, just to set the stage, Acts 10, Peter, rock of the church, has this vision of all these unclean things. And he's told to kill and eat. And he's like, God, I can't do that. That's not what we're supposed to do. And God says, no, anything I declare to be clean is clean. And then he's told that there's going to be these messengers who are going to come and he's to go with them. And Cornelius tells him that he has been told to send for Peter and he wants to know the gospel. And Peter declares the gospel and then the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. And this is the comprehension. This is the understanding that Peter comes to. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Like, I heard you preach it before, Jesus, but now that I see the Holy Spirit in that guy who's not supposed to have it, now I comprehend. Now I understand what you're talking about. This is the strength of comprehension that we need. And don't miss this. It's not that we comprehend it where? Individually. No, it's together with all the saints. That we live in a modern American understanding of individuality. But to remind ourselves that the Bible is written in a communal culture. And that we so often like to picture faith as a very private thing. And I heard one person express it this way. Faith is designed to be personal, but never private. Your faith must be personal. You must own it, but it is not designed to be a private thing. It is only as we encounter the Word, as we fellowship together, as we take this acronym in the Lord's Supper, as we do these things in community, that we can comprehend. You don't have a shot on your own. It is only as the church that we can truly have the strength to receive all of these things. And then he gives us this incredible picture using dimensions. And oh, the wonderful things that preachers have preached on these dimensions over the years. 
But let's just say, what if we only took some things out of the book of Ephesians to describe what type of picture Paul might be wanting us to get? Well, we could think about the breadth of the gospel for a moment, the breadth of the love of Christ. And what has it done? It is wide enough, it is breadth enough to encompass not only Jew, but Gentiles. Gentiles being everybody else. By nature, objects of wrath, those who are far off from God, those who are uninterested, all of us pagans. It is broad enough to include all of them. The length of the love of God. Ephesians 1 tells us what? We have been chosen in him before the foundations of the world. I don't know how long ago that was, because language about time kind of breaks down when you're talking about length and time, right? But like before the foundations of the world, that's a long time ago. That, that, that's a pretty indescribable length. And then he switches the dimensions to go the other way. The depth of the love of Christ. It reaches those of us who are what? Dead in our transgressions. Lying dead on the floor. And then we get one more incredible picture can reach to the depth of our sins and the height of the love of God. What does it do? It takes that which was dead and buried, an object of wrath by God, and ascends it to be seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. That is the dimensions of the love of God. Farther than anything we can fully comprehend. And so... I love the way Spurgeon puts it, too. Got to throw at least one quote in here. He says, Age cannot wear it out. Trials cannot exhaust it. Temptations cannot dry it dry. And like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Right? The love of Christ. What? That surpasses knowledge. Well, is it any wonder we need strength to comprehend it? He literally says, I want you to know the unknowable. Well, by definition, you can't know the unknowable. But you can experience it. And that is his prayer, that we would begin to comprehend. We would be able to grasp it because we have felt his love. That love manifest in the cradle when the God of all worship and honor is what laid in a feeding trough. That's how much he loved you. He loved you enough to live as a vagabond in this world, to put up with the disciples. He loved you so much. He went to a cross, not for his sins, but for the sins of the world. His love is so profound that it defied death and rose victoriously. And where does Hebrews tell us now? Christ now lives to make intercession for his saints. That's how much he loves you. And we think about that image of love for a minute, right? In human relationships and how it grows We think we know what love looks like. And there's those stages in a relationship. I remember dating my wife, Tori, and there was that moment in between our our college years and she was going to go to New Hampshire for the summer. And back in the day, they used to actually like let you walk people up to the concourse. And so the moment came and she's going to get on the plane and I'm just thinking, I have a gold card in my pocket that my parents gave me in case of emergency. I could just buy a ticket and go with her. Right? Like, there is that moment, like, that is just how crazy love is. And I was just a little too responsible to do that. 
So I went home, gave my two-week notice, and prepared to drive out there and spend the summer. And you at least have a few things lined up and ordered. And did why? Because that's what love does, right? But yet you think you know what love is, and it grows and it expands. I was recently talking to someone, and part of their blessing upon the couple was, I pray that this day on your wedding day is the day you love each other the least. I was like, wow, that is such a profound truth. I pray that this would be the day that you would just ever grow forward in your understanding of what love is. And so that's the second thing he prays for. Pray desperately for fullness. It requires strength. It requires comprehension. And then the end of verse 19, the top of the staircase, all of the that's pile up to this one. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a lot of fullness, right? Like all of the other imagery, and it's just like that's a sink because he's out of language to describe it. We think of the Old Testament and how the glory would fill the temple. I can't help but think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this grand vision of how God's train fills the entire temple with his glory. And now that glory wants to come and reside in us. I pray that you would be full of that much of God's power and glory is what he prays for. He puts it this way in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Referring to Christ, and in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Yes, Jesus is God. That makes sense. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule authority. Wait, what? We're to be filled with all the same fullness that Jesus has been filled with. Why? Because we are in union with him. And I was just trying to find some way to help us picture that. And so I imagined if you're, you've ever stood at the edge of the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean and you look out and there is just water as far as you can see. There is more fullness out there to be had. And then you imagine some little kid just takes his bucket and he scoops it up. He's like, I've got the ocean in my bucket. I now have all the fullness of the ocean. Well, yes and no. Your bucket is now completely full as much as it can handle, right? But there's a whole lot more ocean out there to be had. But here's the amazing truth of God's love, that as we are filled with it, our ability to handle it begins to expand. That as we dip into the ocean of God's fullness, our love for him grows. Our ability and our strength to understand more and more and more of him grows. That as we partake in the divine nature, there is more and more and more of him to be had. And so Paul prays, this is what you need more than anything else in this world. In light of everything, pray desperately for the fullness of God. Now we have to recognize this is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly bold request. Right? In fact, I heard one old dead guy put it this way, and I want to quote Armitage Robinson. He writes of this, No prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a more bold request. 
Like, this is the most bold request in his opinion in the entire Bible. And where does it lead? Has Paul overstepped? Has Paul just gone off the deep end? Has he asked for too much? And so what does Paul do? His prayer becomes doxology. His prayer turns to praise. As big as a request of this is, Paul wants you to know God is bigger still. That there is no request that is too big. So we've talked about how we're to pray. And now we come to this praise expectantly. Why? Because of God's exceeding abundance. God's exceeding abundance in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us. And literally, even though you don't see it here in English, he stacks three Greek words for power. And again, there's not a really clean way in English to describe it. But he wants you to recognize that there is power, power, power. The trinity of power is at work. And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, God can do all that you can ask for. He can even do all that you can think of or what you could imagine. What does he say? You could do more than that. And anytime I think about this, I can't help but being a Star Wars fan, think about a scene from the original Star Wars. Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are on the Death Star. They've got their stormtrooper gear on. And Luke Skywalker just hears from R2-D2 that the princess is on the Death Star. And Luke realizes that it is insane, but they have to rescue her. And he has to figure out how to talk Han Solo into doing it. And he tells her, she's rich. How rich? Well, she's got more wealth than you can imagine. I don't know. I can imagine quite a bit. Right? If, you, if you're a Star Wars fan, you're like, there's just, there's some, you're like, I can imagine quite a bit. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that Paul, in his faith, and everything he's seen, he probably has a better imagination of what God can do than I do. Right? There are some people, when you look at them, and they say something like this, it just makes your jaw hang open. Because this isn't somebody with just a wee little bit of faith. This is Paul. This is Saul who has experienced the grace of God and become the missionary to the Gentiles. And he is the one who is declaring God can do more than you can even think of. And to give you another picture of this, Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand, we think, we imagine, same word, that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what does it mean that God can do more than we can think of. The faith required that God spoke things into existence? <laughs> Past that. Ooh, that's a lot of abundance. His power is what? It is at work within us. That same power, chapter 1 tells us, that raised Christ from the dead. And so we need to recognize how tough a sell this idea of God's exceeding abundance is. I think that's especially true coming out of the COVID era. Because you talk to people and everybody just tends to guard their capacity. Everybody just seems to feel even still a little bit more worn. They don't seem to dream dreams the way they used to. That we all just seem to just not quite have it the way we used to. 
that we've seemed to have adopted this scarcity mindset. That I can remember having stood up on this very area and made jokes about people fighting over toilet paper. And then it like turned into a real thing. And, and you're just like, that, the world has gone completely insane, right? We've lived through one of those seasons and we have to recognize the damage it takes upon our soul. Remember the story being told about some of the allied troops who came in and freed some of the people in some of the occupied territories. And there were some of these children who had been orphaned. And the children could not sleep because they were always afraid. They had been hungry for so long. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And even though they woke up every morning, there was food there. They couldn't sleep. And so finally, one young pastor had the idea that each kid before bed, he tore off a hunk of bread and gave it to them and let them sleep with it. And he found that they could sleep. Why? Because now they had in their hands something for tomorrow. They knew that there would be something there tomorrow. That we need to recognize that God has more abundance than we can ever imagine. And to recognize how we've incredibly even witnessed that here in our church. That while one pastor and his family was praying that God would fill their church with people and children. There were pastors in another church who believed that God wanted them to be active in ministry in West Aurora. So they made the decision in faith to move there even though that wasn't where their church was. And that some years later, God brought Redeemer and Advent together in answering profound prayers in ways that none of us could have imagined. That we have witnessed God do an incredible thing, even right in our midst. That God is in the business of answering in ways that we cannot think or imagine. And so when we take heart and take faith in the ways that he has moved, it piles on the praise which is where Paul ends up at the end of this passage in verse 21. Praise not only because of God's exuberating abundance, but also because of an ending glory. Verse 21, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. Picture that in human terms is the moment the Gatorade bottle gets dumped over the top of the coach and they lift him up and carry him out on their shoulders. That that's what Paul wants us to do, is to enthrone God upon our praises. Why? For him be the glory, because he has done so much in and through his church. And we see this incredible link to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of doxologies in the New Testament. And almost all of them exalt Jesus. Imagine that. This is the only one that exalts Jesus and the church. Why? Because the church is the manifold wisdom of God. It is the means by which Christ's sacrifice is being proclaimed to the world and to the power and authorities in the heavenly places. We are God's plan and purpose for the nations. And there is no plan B. That is an incredible responsibility. 
But what an opportunity to bring unending praise to this God of amazing and profound abundance. And then he zooms out another step throughout all generations, forever and ever. Literally, into all generations of the age of the ages. Like, as many ages of ages as you want to pile on there, God is above all. May he be praised throughout all these, to which the only response Paul and all people said, Amen! Right? Because he takes this incredible request beginning with the prayer that we would not lose heart, even though it looks at those times like the church is failing that we would in turn pray boldly for the fullness of God, experiencing his strength and beginning to comprehend how much he in fact loves us. And that when we do, we can't help but praise God for all he has done and recognize that's only the tip of the iceberg of what he wants to do in us and through us. So we hear his profound message today to pray this not only for ourselves, not only for our families, but to pray this for one another. And I can't help but think of any greater conclusion than the great story of the boy who fell into a pit of molasses. And he says, God, make my capacity equal to my opportunity. Right? God, make our capacity equal to the incredible opportunity that you have given us. May we ever expand in our understanding of your love for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, we can still hear the words of the Apostle Paul echoing over the Ephesian church. And Lord, we can see him praying the exact same thing for us today. Lord, may we be a church who can boldly come before you because we have seen you do so many things. Lord, the countless stories that we relay to one another of your goodness and of your faithfulness. Lord, both in the easily triumphant, but God, also in the brokenness and the pain. Where, Lord, in those moments where we thought you had failed us, but we have seen you work transformation out of our pain. In those moments where we have seen you use the hardest and most profound hurt in our lives, to enable us to have the heart to encourage and minister to others. Lord, may we be people who can pray boldly. God, may we be people who pray for one another, that we would have the strength, that we would have the comprehension, that ultimately we would be filled with all of your fullness. Lord, knowing that that is a prayer that never ends. Lord, even in all of eternity, there is more of you to be had, even when we see you face to face. But how much more so here and now? God, I would ask that you would pour forth your Spirit onto all of us, that even today we might grow in our ability and our experience of your profound love for us. And that that would drive us to pray all the more for our brothers and sisters. That it would call upon us to go and to reach and to meet new people even this day. 
Lord, so we might hear their stories. And in hearing their stories, Lord, recognize how you are working and receiving encouragement and giving it. And Lord, may we be people who do not keep that fullness for themselves, but transform it into praise to you. Because you are the one who has already done more than we could ever imagine. And Lord, this journey is only getting started. Lord, we do not know how many more days any of us have or how many days this earth has left until your return. But Lord, maybe they be full of your fullness. May they be opportunities that we might grow all the more in our understanding of you that your praise may echo forth from those in their 90s to the cries of the children in this church who have not yet even turned one. Lord, may all of those voices declare your praises. May they ring forth not only in our church, but around this world until the day when people from every tribe and tongue are gathered around your throne declaring, Holy, holy is the Lamb. This we ask. In the holy, mighty name of Jesus, amen.